Luke chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. These are the parables that Jesus was speaking on his route to Jerusalem. As I said before, they would stop along the way if there was a synagogue. And Jesus, as the crowds gathered, the caravan of people became larger and larger as they made their way some hundred uh, or some 80 miles from the Galilee up to Jerusalem, following the king's highway after coming through Judea. And these parables were spoken by Christ there. And, of course, along the way, and these would have been the Pharisees who had sent out their agents to trap Jesus, to catch Jesus in something so that they could incriminate him and find some way to prosecute him. And so we've covered... uh, these parables beginning in chapter 15, the lost sheep, the lost coin, the lost son. And these are continuing and these are messages. These parables are stories to communicate a truth. He's trying to communicate a truth to his disciples, but also to the Pharisees who were pretenders. They were hypocrites. They were using their position uh, to lord over the people. And uh, Jesus was exposing them, hoping that they would have ears to hear and be convicted of their sins and repent. Stop being religious and find a true living relationship with God. And so in chapter 16 here, we have the parable of the unjust steward. We have the uh, Pharisees responding to Jesus, deriding him, looking down their self-righteous noses at him. And then we have the final parable of the rich man and Lazarus. And What we are looking at here is the accountability of our stewardship here in the first one, Uh, the condemnation of the Pharisees because they were lovers of money, as we'll read, and the Lord in this final parable or story, however you choose to accept it, uh, giving us a perspective on earthly materialism and wealth. Uh, So let's begin by reading the first 13 verses of chapter 16. And he also said to his disciples, there was a certain rich man who had a steward and was accused, was brought to, the accusation was brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. And so he called him and said to him, what is this I hear about you? You give an account of your stewardship for you will no longer be steward. And the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me, and I cannot dig, and I am ashamed to beg. I have resolved what to do. And when I am put out of stewardship, they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him, and he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. And so he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, take your bill and write 80. And so the master commended the unjust steward because he had dealt shrewdly. The sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. And I say to you 
Make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when it fails, they may receive you into everlasting, to an everlasting home. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what which is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in mammon. And so we have this crooked steward who is required now to give an account of his stewardship. Essentially, he would be uh, not a household servant here, but really an estate manager. So this fellow that he's working for, the owner of all this, is very, very wealthy. And he gets exposed for what he really is, being a crooked individual. And so he begins to deliberate within himself, you know, uh, I, I got to deal with this. I, ooh, what am I going to do, right? And so he comes up with this plan, as we've read. Um, he negotiates a favorable future for himself. Uh, what he's doing here is he's seeking to obligate his master's debtors to himself. You know, if I scratch your back, then, you know, you'll scratch mine type of thing. You know, he's a white-collar worker. He's uh, not going to do blue-collar work, right? He's not in the realm of consideration of doing any kind of physical labor. Uh, um, so he wants them to doing uh, those who he lets off the hook a little bit uh, a favor. And it appears that they're using official documentation here. Um, so this would be something that having presented to his master would pass the sniff test of not being fraudulent and it's quite possible that the master, the owner of it all would not have known uh, how much was actually owed. This guy was uh, not only a poor steward but now he's also ripping his master off for his own benefit. And so when we read this you think, man this guy ought to be strung up, right? I mean, what a crook. Well, it seems to me that the owner of it all is a pretty gracious man and we see here that he commends the unjust steward, and, and sort of that sort of separates our head from our shoulders a little bit, right? Like, wait, this guy just has been squandering your fortune, he's now ripped you off, and now you're commending him for uh, his shrewdness? Yes, for his astute shrewdness and the way that he negotiated a deal for himself. That was pretty smart. He's not commending him for his morality, now we know that, okay? He deserves to be punished and, and, and sent to jail for his activity. And so this is um, what's expected in stewardship. It's, we're expected to be faithful. Now, this is the, to be a big hint. <clears throat> are you Pharisees paying attention here? Because you guys are unjust stewards. You're thieves. You're using your situation to benefit yourself and you're squandering, as it were, what God has put into your hands. And we are taught in stewardship that we are to use our money wisely, we're to be prudent, 
because we want to maximize our dollars. We want to squeeze Abe to his eyeballs bug out, right? We want to go first class at wholesale price. That's what most of us seek to do with our monies, right? And so this is if you are an employer or, uh, and being employed by someone and you watch over your employer's good, it is expected that you do right by him and try to do your best to prosper him. Ultimately, in the end, if you do that, you'll benefit yourself. This guy didn't see it that way, apparently. You know, uh, this is what we do on a personal level. We, we don't want to squander our money. We don't want to uh, be reckless in the way we use it. Um, and then he makes this, in the end of verse 8, he makes this statement that has been puzzling to many of us, at least to, to me for a number of years. And I, I, I know it's true, but I don't like it. <laughs> and that is that the sons of this generation the children of this generation there, the sons of the world, are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. You know, the unsaved, the sons of the world, are shrewd. They're, they're better at negotiating with the short-term temporal things than Christians, true believers, are with the eternal things uh, that they've been given. And I think what's trying to, uh, to be communicated, at least uh, my understanding. There may be more to it than this. Look, the sons of this world have no eternal future. It's here and now. They're living for here and now. It's all going to burn. They're not taking anything with them, right? Well, we know that that's not true. We're not storing our treasures here. We want to store our treasures uh, in heaven. Um, but if with that truth, we're not as diligent about storing our treasures on the other side as these people are about acquiring the temporal on this side. And that's, I believe, what Jesus is trying to communicate. It should bring, bring conviction to all of us because I believe that God gives believers wealth to do a number of things. One is to share with others who are in need. And secondly, to get the gospel out. We can't take it with us. And this is what he's saying here. Use, use this short-term mammon this money that's temporal, to make friends while you're here. Get the gospel out. And then the other side, when you arrive, guess who's going to be waiting for you? When you invested and gave your time, talent, and treasure to getting the gospel out, and that gospel mes message reached the lost, people you have no idea who they are, and you probably will never meet on this side of heaven, but when you get to the other side... Can you imagine this? You cross eternity's shore, and they're waiting. There are some strangers, and they got these huge smiles on their face. And they're smiling at you, and you're thinking, who's that? Well, those are the people that God used you and your faithfulness and giving that was reached with the gospel message. It was because of your faithfulness that they made it to heaven. That's what we're talking about here. That's an important truth to think about. Contemplate. Make friends for yourselves. Use your unrighteous mammon to make friends. You know, the gospel's free, right? We all know that. Unfortunately, somebody's got to pay the freight, and the freight's not always cheap, right? So we all know about that. So the other thing that we can't miss here, and, and that is we're to be faithful with what God places in our hands. 
And as Jesus said, if you're faithful in a little, you'll be faithful with a lot. If you're not faithful with a little, then you're not going to be faithful if you're given a lot. And consider this. If you can't take care, if you can't handle your checkbook, how is it that God will give you and entrust more to you? And so this is why money is such a test for us. Are we going to be wise and prudent in how we use it? And may God uh, educate us. And as our, one of our mottos for the church here, it's not just us, we've received this from others, uh, our pastor that we support in Africa, uh, Pastor Dale gave us this, and he got it from someone else. But it is this, we do what we can with what we have where God has placed us. If you and I will live by that, then rest assured, when you cross into heaven's shore, there's going to be people waiting for you to greet you. So let's just be faithful with what God gives us. What are the true riches that Jesus is talking about? Well, one of them is truth, for sure. Friendships and relationships are another you know, you think about it, there are only a few things on this earth that are eternal. <coughs> Everything else is gone. It's going to go away. What are those eternal things that we have at our disposal now? Well, one of them is the Word of God. The Word will never cease to be. The other is the souls of men. That's of great value to God. And another thing is works. You know what you're going to take to heaven with you? It's your works. Oh, really? Yeah. Revelation 14, if you want to pull that up, for those of you who don't have a Bible with you. Revelation 14, 13 says this, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors and their works do follow them. What kind of works do I want to have following me? God is keeping track of our works and of our conduct. And remember, our true riches last forever. Choose your master, right? For the sake of time, let's move on to our reaction of the Pharisees because you know that these guys weren't too happy with Jesus. In fact, they, as it says here, that. Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard these things and they derided him. You know, they are uh, looking down their noses at Jesus. And this deriding, it means scoffing. Oh, come on, Jesus. Oh, come on. You know, just that just ugly heart attitude, right? And he said to them, you are those. And he just, I love Jesus because he doesn't hold back. When, when people are being overtly hypocritical, then Jesus met them with the same thing. This is what it says in Psalm 18. To the shrewd, God will show himself shrewd. To the merciful, God will show himself merciful. To the kind, God will show himself kind. The, the issue is, how do I want God to approach me, right? If I've got a haughty attitude, the Lord's going to come after me, right? With a little bit of force in his, his words, right? And so this is how Jesus meets them. You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your heart. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing into it. 
It is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. And whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. Whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. And so these are some pretty exacting, direct things directed towards the Pharisees. So they were guilty of serving for money. They were scoffing Jesus. They were self-righteous. They had their eyes on the temporal and earthly things of life. That was their perspective. So these were pious pretenders in reality. Uh, They did not possess godly characters, but they sought to present themselves that way. It's all about public appearance for them. They had a way of compartmentalizing their lives. They could do things that were contrary to the law because we're Pharisees, we're spiritual leaders representing the establishment. They're sort of like the politicians of our day. Law and ethics don't apply to them, only to the deplorables, the citizens of the state. And so they would use the law to justify themselves, something that the law was never intended to do. And they accused Jesus of disannulling the law of Moses and all, which was the farthest thing from Jesus' mind. And what Jesus actually did is he came and revealed the intent of the law, which was love. You don't steal from your neighbor because that's not loving. You don't take somebody else's wife because that's not loving. You don't murder people because that's not loving. And the law was to be interpreted through the eyes of love. But that dispensation was coming to an end, and it came to an end with John the Baptist. This is what he says to them. And he's really telling them, your time is up, fellas. Your dispensation and law representatives, it's over. And it ended with John. So there are those today that develop these uh, systematic theologies and all. And I want to just say that to those of you who study maybe a little bit more and take it a little bit deeper, which is fine. Just remember, systematic theology is not uh, authorized necessarily by God. It's what's brilliant men who have studied the Bible have organized uh, theology, the study of God, uh, in, in ways that you know, we can categorize it and analyze it maybe in deeper ways. Uh, there are two main schools of theology uh, that are in the Christian church for the most part. Uh, covenant theology, uh, of which Reformed theology is part of, and then that of dispensational theology. And of course, uh, the pr- predominant one is covenant theology or Reformed theology, and the lesser uh, minority view is that of dispensational theology. We uh, are of the minority. We see that God has broken up his economy in different stages. He worked differently uh, before the flood. Uh, he worked with the patriarchs. He worked with the nation of Israel all through the Old Testament. And now he's left the nation of Israel that he's not quite done with. And now he's dealing with the church. All the church is is an expression of the kingdom of God that was preached by John, preached by Jesus, and explained to us by Jesus. The kingdom of God is here now. It's being established spiritually in the hearts of those who believe. What is the main difference between the two is probably important to understand, and it is necessarily, I think, a necessary and important point. And the reason why I'm not a reformer and why I'm not of the covenant theology, and it's their position on Israel. They are of replacement theology. They believe that the church has replaced Israel. And we know that as you study through the book of Romans, God is not done with national Israel. What is their state right now? They're in a state of blindness. 
They rejected the Messiah, and they were scattered throughout the world. But God said in, at the end of time, before his return, he would regather them. 1948, he regathered them. Whatever the motive was for those who did it, it is of the Lord. He's using it. He has gathered them there in 1948, and God is not done with national Israel. This is, uh, this is a blind spot with reformers, uh, people who hang on uh, to reform theology. Uh, the important thing is, is that to understand that systematic theology is not something necessarily approved by God. Something that's made by man. So that's why you and I are under no compulsion to view the Bible through those lenses. In fact, I would encourage you not to do that. I believe the Bible is to be read devotionally. Read it and get to know the author. And the author who's given us his spirit to those who believe, he is the one who will teach us. He will lead us, Jesus said, into all truth. Your Bible and the Holy Spirit will lead you into truth. And I'm not worried about that as a leader of the, of, of the church. I trust that God knows how to impart knowledge and truth to you and to I. And that's what's important here. We're in this new era of trusting uh, in the leading of the Holy Spirit, being guided by the Word of God. Now, I know there's a couple things said there that are difficult and I want to say this about uh, divorce because this is a very prominent issue in our culture and there's a lot of people that don't go to church because they have been divorced and that's really a tragedy. Uh, Jesus puts it straight. You know, if you divorce your wife, you cause her to commit adultery. And if you marry a divorced person, you commit adultery. Now the big issue with some people is that if a person marries someone who's been previously married, are they living in an adulterous situation? Well, I don't believe that it's a continual act of committing adultery. I believe when there's brokenness, there's forgiveness. If you aren't broken over what happened, because that's, you should be, because when divorce takes place, what is that? That is two people who have become one being ripped in half. That's why it hurts so bad. It's not just flesh we're talking about here. We're talking about the spirit. Two spirits are bonded in marriage. So when that divorce takes place, there's a ripping. And it's the most traumatic, hurtful, and shameful experience that a person can go through. And it's really sad. And it's, if people who've been through that can't come to the church and, and receive comfort and help and strength and encouragement, where else are they going to go? To the local bar? It's up to the church to wrap our arms around those who are broken and contrite over what has happened to them. Now, there is grounds for a legitimate, so to speak, a scriptural grounds for divorce, and that is when there is unfaithfulness. Um, and so, uh, but even if there wasn't scriptural grounds, there's still forgiveness. It is not the unforgivable sin. And divorce does not have to define your life if you've experienced that. God will heal. God will, will save. And God will forgive. Let him be the healer of your heart. And lastly here, I thank you for your patience. I think this last uh, story, parable, uh, it's a little bit of both because it's the only parable, if it is a parable, that the character has a name. One of the characters has a name. And so let me read through these verses here and make a few closing comments. 
There was a rich man, this is verse 19, who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. There was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And being in torments, he, in Hades, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us and you there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. And then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rise from the dead. It is amazing how blind and deaf we are to the truth and how resistant we are to the conviction of the Holy Spirit that even if one would rise from the dead, a person would not repent. But we see this is a certain rich man. He lived in luxury, clothed in purple. That's a sign of opulence. Very wealthy. He, every day was just a, a party. He celebrated in splendor, you know. What's not to like, you know? Uh, he died and was buried. Notice it says he, was, he died and buried. No angels carried him. He just died and was buried. Um, but he is still existing. There we see in Hades, which is the realm of the dead. That's where people go who die that are outside faith. Uh, and there he saw... In afar off, as we've read, uh, Abraham. And so what we gather from this story slash parable is the underworld. In the lower parts of the earth, in this spiritual dimension, it's another dimension. Uh, inner, uh, none of us have been there because we're, we're still here. <laughs> but this is a compartment. In that compartment, apparently, there were, it was divided into two. We had a paradise... How do we know that? Because what did Jesus say? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Abraham's bosom was known as paradise. But then between them, this great chasm, this great gulf, this impenetrable, fixed chasm would not allow people to pass from one domain to the other. And the other domain was, as we've read, a place of torment. But apparently, there's visual, visualness there. There's verbal contact, just not the ability to go back and forth. Now, if you are taking notes, you can 
Check out Ephesians 4, that he who ascended, Jesus Christ, after his death, burial, and resurrection, first descended. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, the great fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So we know that when Jesus gave up his spirit, his physical body was placed, wrapped in, in clothes, grave clothes, and placed in the tomb for three days, right? And we know that his spirit descended into Hades, into Abraham's bosom. He preached to the captives there. Ephesians 4 talks about he who first ascended, descended, and then he led captivity out. He led captivity out of their captivity. So essentially, in, with his ascension, paradise in the lower parts of the earth was emptied. So for you and I who, die, who now die in the Lord, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. There, but people who are outside faith still continue to go to the place in the lower parts of the earth, Hades. The Bible talks about death and hell will be delivered up and there'll be a time of the resurrection of the unjust and they will stand before God and their books will be opened and they will give an account of their life to God. And it'll be shown where they had an opportunity to repent, to believe, but they chose not to. And so they will be sent to a place called the lake of fire prepared for the devil and his angels. God doesn't want any human being, none of mankind to go there. That was not what was ordained for mankind. He wants man to be saved. So this is uh, what we understand in our theology <laughs> to be the case. And this, this parable forward slash uh, story gives us uh, that insight into what goes on in the underworld. There is this sense that it, uh, your works follow you. Apparently this self-absorbed man did not care for this poor beggar at his gate. Never, it doesn't appear that he ever uh, attempted to feed him or care for him in any way. And, they, of course, they both died. And um, we understand what happened. One of the things I'll point out here as we come to a close is the Old Testament is sufficient for salvation. This is one of the things that's quite disturbing to me as a pastor. When I hear other pastors, some of these emergent pastors... Who, who haven't guts enough to preach the truth that comes from the Old Testament. They won't talk about hell. They won't talk about uh, un things that make people uncomfortable because, after all, you've got to keep people coming because, you know, we've got to keep the business rolling here, you know, because they're like the Pharisees. They are lovers of money. It isn't, it's get the people in and get them out and don't forget to tithe, you know. This is what goes on in the church. And so many of them have made this stand against We no longer need the Old Testament. I can tell you one thing, if, as we, and in those of you who have been in the church for a while, you know how powerful of an impact that going through the Pentateuch, you know, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, has impacted our church. And one of the ways that's impacted my life and your life is the fear of the Lord. He's the same, our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's a God of grace. He's a God of mercy in the Old Testament as much as he is in the New Testament. But if you don't teach it, 
people aren't going to know it. Why do we go through the whole Bible here at Calvary Chapel? We go through the whole Bible that you might know the character, the, the, the nature of God. If you know the character and nature of God, then you know he can be trusted. And no matter what happens in your life, you know that God has you and you're not afraid. Your fears are, they are alleviated because you trust in his love and his grace. It doesn't mean that our life will be a bed of roses. It doesn't mean it'll be pain-free, but he's promised to be with us. And that's a great comfort, especially in the days in which we live. I want to close with this verse in Hosea, because let's not forget what this is all about. This is a verse that the Lord gave me personally, and it's not like I'm laying it on you. But I'm sort of doing that. <laughs> and I really think it's for our church, as well as myself. Hosea 6.3, we covered this uh, this past Wednesday. It says, let us know and let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. For his going forth is established as the morning. And he will come to us like rain, like the latter and the former rain. The former rains were the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Before Jesus returns, I'm of the opinion in this latter rain that the Lord is going to pour forth His Spirit, we're going to see people added to the church. We're going to see the power of the Spirit made manifest, probably similar to the way it was in the early church. But it's only going to come through humble, broken, and contrite people. Who is he? The one who is contrite, the one who is broken, before God is the one who, who trembles at his word. Those are the people that are going to see the work of God happen. And so coming to church is just a time of just humbling ourselves before him, allowing him to reveal himself to you. The most important thing in your life is for you to know the Lord. There's nothing greater that you can experience in your life than knowing God. You might disagree with that, but you're wrong. Okay, the most important thing in our lives is that we know the Lord. We're going to spend a long time with Him. You ever think about that? I mean, so you might want to consider how do we do that? Well, not this isn't the only thing, but it is an important thing, and I talk about it a lot. I talk to you and encourage you to do your daily devotions. Open that Bible, keep your head in that book, allow the Holy Spirit to teach you. And part of that is meditation. And I'm not talking about yogi or you know, that kind of stuff, right? No. You know what I mean? I'm making fun. I'm making fun, sorry. Meditation is simply reading it and comp contemplating what you're reading. It's the key to learning and knowing God. It's thoughtful consideration and focused thoughts on what is read and revealed about God. So when you read the scripture, you're like, wow, that's amazing. And you take it in and you think about it, and then naturally the thing that comes is you pray it. You read the word. You pray the word. And God speaks to your heart. There's something that changes inside you that is amazing. I would not be in this position right here, right now, if it wasn't for the word of God. His word has transformed my life. I've been doing it for over 45 years, and I, you know what? I'm not going to stop. It's going to be more and more as I can do more and more. You think carefully, you study prayerfully, and you let that truth penetrate your heart. 
And you'll never be more joyful. You'll never experience greater peace than when you come to know the Lord. And what you're doing, what we are doing when we do this, we are, that is worship. That is to worship God in spirit and in truth. This is what we are about here at Calvary Chapel, is you developing your personal relationship with Jesus and learning to love your brother who you can see as well as love the God that you cannot see with your eye. So this week, I want to encourage you to pursue the Lord. Shall, you stand? Shall we stand? Father, I pray that this be 